digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. This is Kevin Gallagher, and my next guest on Digging in the Dirt is Woody Tash. Here on Digging in the Dirt, you know I like to talk with people out there doing practical things in our communities that facilitate change and make the planet a better place to live. Woody Tash is one such person on a level that not many of us have attained. Bear with me while I give you an idea what this man is up to. Woody Tash is the author of Inquiries into the Nature of Slow Money, Investing as if Food, Farms, and Fertility Mattered, from our friends at Chelsea Green Press. He also did Soil, Notes Towards the Theory and Practice of Nurture Capital, and a book called Aha, Fake Trillions, Real Billions, Bitcoin, and the Great American Do-Over from the Slow Money Institute. Tash is former chairman of Investor's Circle, a nonprofit angel network that has facilitated more than $200 million of investments over 300 early stage sustainability promoting companies. He is the founder of Slow Money and most recently, Bitcoin. The Bitcoin website provocatively says funding organic farms and local food systems is as important as going to Mars. Welcome, Woody. Thanks for being here today with me. Thanks, Kevin. We all know about it, and at least pretend to understand Bitcoin. So what is Bitcoin? Oh, you're, you're still pretending you understand Bitcoin, huh? All right. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. So Bitcoin is, uh, let's say, a playful riff. Um, sometimes I say it's the opposite of Bitcoin, but that gets me in trouble because people think I'm then saying something bad about Bitcoin, um, uh, which indirectly I am. Uh, but let's just clear that up right now. I'm not against Bitcoin. I'm just against the excesses that come along with many of our technological improvements and a lot of our media stuff. Obviously, that should be that should not be a, a radical statement at this point. So we need balance. Bitcoin is, as the name might suggest, involves in local food. And it's just a, it's a new pl uh, a, a funding platform. It's nonprofit. It's Bitcoin.org, and um, we're seeking to generate a lot of small donations online that we will then deploy to build, uh, to fund community groups that make 0% loans to local farmers. And that's a little bit more of a conversation about what that is, but um, uh, it's basically, uh, so it's a non-crypto non-currency, <laughs> just to finish that thought. It's, it's not really, it's not a cryptocurrency. It's not really a coin. It's a riff on all of that to say, we need to use our money differently. And in our case, we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, where you started funding small farms and local food systems, because we do think it's as important as going to Mars. That's great. So you found this slow money, which why don't you explain briefly what slow money is and what's the difference between that and Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is just a way of doing slow money online. It's slow money is a small movement, meaning it's not a fund. Um, no one's in control of anybody else's money. There's no fiduciary involvement. It's just a network of people that emerged after my first book came out on, on uh, investing as a food farmers and fertility matter to help one another get some money into the hands of local farms, small organic farms, local food businesses, et cetera. So there are, there are volunteer groups that kind of sprung up in a bunch of places around the country. And it's mostly people just collaborating on very low interest loans to local farmers. But over the years, I pulled out of that set of activities, the idea for the 0% loans 
and and uh, and most recently Bitcoin as a way of carrying this movement forward in the next decade. So how does it work? Explain to us, you know, zero percent loans. How 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 are you selecting people who get them, and okay. what are you looking at? Well, it's good that we started there uh, because it's very just the way you set up the, the the whole podcast. It's a very practical thing, and we're actually doing it. It's not just a set of ideas. So there are five groups right now in the U.S. that are making zero percent loans to local farmers. Four in Colorado, where I was living until recently, and one in Virginia. And so I'll describe to you the one. It's one of our flagships, I guess you'd say. It's one of the the more established ones that started in Boulder, um, where I was living. Uh, we have 115 members. A member is someone who makes a donation in a given calendar year so that you have a vote in that calendar year. Donations start at $250. Unless you're a farmer, you can join for $25. And the, the top donation is 50,000 so far. That's one person. And we've raised over $500,000 since inception, made of uh, 20 loans totaling over like $320,000, I think we're up to now. I say we, because I still feel like I'm there, even though I'm now in Providence. So that's in a nutshell what it is. It's a community group of people who chip in what they can afford to chip in and then get together. In the case of Boulder, several times a year, farmers come into the room or it could be a farm to table restaurant. It could be a seed company, a cheesemaker. It doesn't have to be just farms, but it's mostly farms and make a presentation to the members and the members vote on giving that person a 0% loan. Hmm. So, so when you think about the arc of it, you say, why, why doing it that way? Because over time, even though some of the loans won't repay, most of them will. And in our case, basically all of them are statistically almost there's one small $5,000 loan that's in arrears. But over the four or five years, they pay back. And if you keep getting donations from new members in at the top and you get the loans repaid, very gradually the pool of capital will grow. So it is truly slow money. It's a very slow growing pool of, of nonprofit capital to, to build a local food system. But it grows. Yeah, I mean, it will take a long time to grow to anything of any, quote, real substance, you know, to get to be millions of dollars, it's going to take a generation to get to enough millions to, you know, if you if you think if you get to the next part of the, you know, I hope one of the questions you'd ask, well, how can this really make a difference? You know, farmers can't afford to buy the farms anymore and farmland is bid up to ridiculous prices in, in any neighborhood that's close enough to a suburban or an urban market. And all of that is true. So, you know, we want to, we're thinking long-term here. We're thinking urgently, but with, but long-term. So how do we get something going that if we stick with it, will will grow over time into a more substantial pool of capital. In the meantime, we have to be proud, I guess you'd say, of making a lot of small loans. And we're making loans for like, you know, drip irrigation systems, hoop houses, you know, used vans, small infrastructure improvements on a working farm that, you know, every penny counts when you're, when you're doing that kind of stuff on a small farm. So why do you select this niche, you know, of these farmers? The, um, that's also, that's a really good question. Um, maybe over time it'll get broader. And, and I actually have some people advising me on Bitcoin who think maybe we should expand the, the lens for Bitcoin even a little bit. But we're focused on food because it's just, uh, how do I say this? Well, the most practical way to say it is, I think, I think if you're interested in building countervailing forces to globalization run amok, if I can say all those words, it's a mouthful. But if you, if you think our global systems are, are teetering or are, are volatile or dysfunctional or, or maybe even prone to collapse, it leads you into a discussion of what we can loosely call localization. Now there's all the different things that would be done 
to build community resilience kind of from the ground up. And of all those things, food is the most immediate. It's the easiest place to get started because of the local food movement, because of CSAs, community supported agriculture, farmers markets, people have got some idea what a, a direct connection to a local farmer means. And so it's a really good place to start. Now, I because I'm a kind of an acolyte of Wendell Berry and Wes Jackson and some of the pioneers of, of kind of the new agriculture, whatever you want to call it, regenerative is kind of the, the, uh, the word of the day, but it's all basically, organic farming is why I like to keep it simple and stay away from the buzzwords if possible. That's always the place I've gravitated to. And I just think as per this piece that connected us, a call to farms, which is, a, I guess you'd call it a blog post or whatever that we put up on the website last week. I, I just think there's no better place to try to fix what's broken in society than at the level of a farm. I mean, it's how we feed ourselves, how we take care of the earth. I mean, there's nothing more basic than that. Yeah, and that's what attracted me to you because I used to do a program. I would interview pundits and politicians and activists, but felt it was going nowhere and having no effect. So I pivoted and started talking to people who grow things in their communities. I really love those people, and I feel that's a place where some real change can be made. And it seems that you've arrived at that conclusion too. Yeah, I mean, I'm constantly, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, amazed, intrigued you know, occasionally despairing, occasionally all fired up again. You know, it, it's such an immediate thing. The, 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 the rewards you can get from connecting to a farmer directly, obviously doing it as a customer, a consumer, that's a good thing. So buying food directly from a farmer, really good thing to do. So that's, that's very rewarding in itself. Mm -hmm. Then getting to the next level of realizing how can I do something more than that? How can I provide some working capital for that farm, knowing that the farmer needs more than customers, they need other kinds of support as well, and given how important this is. Um, so as soon as you get over that little, that next piece, it is extremely rewarding. So, so I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, what's that, what's that, that old uh, saying, you know, someone says no one ever on their deathbed, no one ever said, you know, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. So, <laughs> so, so I always think about it as like, no one ever said I spent too much time with farmers. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, so, they're the best. <laughs> just, I mean, it's just, the people who are doing small, diversified organic farms, and when I say small, I just mean non-industrial scale. So it could be anything from a few hundred acres down to a few acres, are as a rule, I know it's kind of you get in trouble when you make blanket statements, but as a rule, they're just an amazing group of people. And especially when you meet one that has been doing it for a while and is, is succeeding, because it's hard, obviously. It's hard um, work. And, and they just have some amazing qualities about them to do that. They have to be amazing entrepreneurs. They have to be amazing growers. They have to, you know, be attuned to nature. They have to work their butts off. There's just something about them that is really remarkable and definitely should be celebrated. Yeah. And you picked a place where people need help and that's with the money. You know, a lot of progressives and environmentalists I run into, they sort of a, have an automatic healthy dislike of corporations and capitalism and, and, but they don't understand the mechanisms of this country that we go through and people actually need some help in, in, in loans and stuff. Like you said, they're fighting against say developers. And so it's, it's great to see a serious way to do that. What is the, the kind of person you're looking for in this, like I, I saw somebody called Daniel Griffin. You have Tim Show Wildlands on your website. Maybe you want to talk about him, or is there somebody else that gives us an oh, example oh. of? Sure. Well, we are now doing. Uh, you're referring to a tab that we've put up on the website now called Bitcoin Dialogues. So every two weeks on the second and fourth Wednesday of every month, we have a, a kind of an open Zoom meeting 
they've been averaging between 50 and 90-ish people. And we feature some, we have a featured guest each time. It's a one hour thing. It's really a chance for us all to just get to know one of these farmers in depth. Yeah, uh, Daniel Griffith from Tim Shell Wildlands is, is um, he's the next one. He's coming up um, day after tomorrow. I don't know when this is gonna air, but, but the point is we're curating the recordings of all these on the website under the Bitcoin Dialogue. So we've done about 10 of them so far, maybe it's eight. And uh, so anyone listening to this is curious to, to your point, can go on there and actually see the recordings of us interacting with you know, a very interesting farmer from somewhere in, in, in the United States. They're all under this general heading of small and mid-sized diversified organic farms. We did have uh, Will Harris a while back and he has 3,000 acres. He, he kind of broke, he kind of broke, breaks the rule on the high end. <laughs> and, and well, and I always, you know, he has like nine species regenerative livestock thing in Bluffton, Georgia. It's on the same piece of land his great grandfather farmed. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing story. You know, I always say, you know, if you're too ideological about what small means, then you're just small minded. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I'm in the, the mind that you can't get, we can't get out of some of these problems without the, some of the things that you're doing. I think it's, there's just so important. I mean, you ask somebody who wants to buy a new tractor or wants to buy seed or, or insure his, his farm, whatever it is, he, he's going to need the sector that you're talking about. Without it, I don't think we get out of this. What do you think? Well, though, yeah, of course, that's the big question. And I've been talking to a lot of people um, since I distributed that call to farms piece. Um, and I just had a long call this morning with, with a, someone I hadn't talked to in a while. It was just on this, like, how bad are things? <laughs> how bad do you really think it is? And how, how That's near the end of our conversation. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, who knows? You know, it's, it's, it's hard to know. You know, in the investment world, um, like, like the early pioneers of what used to be called socially responsible investing, and it went through a bunch of name changes, you know, now it's impact investing. But the people who are really at the forefront of that, you know, for years, they're all bears. They're all thinking the world's going to end. You know, things are going to collapse. <laughs> and, and when I, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the stock market was at 2000 and 3000, which, you know, in the scheme of things was not very long ago in the greater scheme of things. So it's always a funny conversation, you know, to, to say like how bad are things and, you know, when's the collapse going to happen. But the guy I was on the phone with this morning, He's a very experienced guy. He's a greenhouse architect, does stuff for people all over the world. He thinks it's really close now, you know, whatever. <laughs> Look, you don't have to, things are, think, we have a lot of problems. That's all you have to, if you think, if you think conscientiously, I use the word conscientious in the call to farms. I talk about conscientious investing or conscientious affection as opposed to conscientious objection. I am fond of language. You may, you may have noticed that. You know, if you're thinking conscientiously, about what, what's happening, it just leads you in a certain direction, I think. It leads you to question, to not accept blindly the premises of late-stage industrial capitalism. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That'd be the softest way to put it. Mm -hmm. and, and so if once you question that, and then you think, well, is, it, is an alternative possible? Is a, is, a, is a healthier alternative possible? The answer is it is possible. <laughs> and it's just a question of how it will happen. Is it going to happen in response to collapse or can we do it before collapse? And that's the big question. <laughs> the question. So again, coming back to the local food movement, it's one of those things that allows us to do something right now that is immediately rewarding and tangible, meaning you get healthy food out of it. You get to spend time with farmers and farms. I mean, it's, it's an immediately positive thing. So I started to say this before, I'm constantly kind of amazed and it both inspired and, and kind of 
depressed a little bit occasionally about how hard it is to get people to, to actually connect with the local farmer and realize how rewarding it is. It's more than just like walking down the street at a farmer's market. That's, a, that's an indicator. That's a really good thing. And the reason they exist is because people feel a little bit of this energy, which is good. But then we have to take it to the next level. We really have to roll our sleeves up and get some serious money in the hands of the farmers and really think about how are we going to support the next wave, the resurgence of small organic farms, which I believe is in the future. I mean, it is coming, whether it comes you know, after a collapse or, or in response to more serious disruption or not. Just look what happened to food, what's happening to food prices right now. And that's in response to one issue, you know, Ukraine, this immediate right bit of food inflation that we're feeling and and that coming after covid which was another disruption right people are going to start waking up sooner rather than later to the idea that what used to be the price disparity between organic and conventional is going to go away because there's going to be so much inflation in conventional in other words there's going to be enough disruption in the industrial food system that the alternative is going to start looking better to more people Um, even down to growing it in your own backyard (laughs) oh yeah of course yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's look when when if 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 that degree of collapse, if a if a much more broad based degree of collapse happens, then of course it'll go back to like Victory Gardens, which is always used as the example from World War II, which was a real thing. You know, where, where like I think we grew half of the, it was half or more than half of the veg, of the vegetables consumed in the United States were grown at home for a number of years during World War. II. So some of these crises you're talking about, you as I mentioned, I saw on the website that today's crises will drive new demands for structural reform. And it's tempting to assume that the change we need can only be achieved at sufficient speed and scale from the top down. But that's not what we're talking about. I see it coming from the bottom up. I think you have similar feelings. Am I wrong? Oh, well, um, no, uh, you didn't say it strongly enough. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, you know, to me, I, I'm always, this is, always fascinates me too, because I'm dealing with money. And um, as you, people heard the introduction, you know, I, I, I've had just enough experience in finance over the years that I, you know, I'm not a total crackpot. And it amazes me that very, very smart people, you know, some seriously intelligent people who are used to dealing with money at, at large levels cannot get over the hurdle of realizing that large pools of money have their own, have probably, you know, wealth, large accumulations of wealth create inherent problems for the people who hold them, who hold it of all kinds, whether it's groupthink, uh, fiduciary goggles, um, you know, spending all your time thinking about money and putting transactions in front of relationships. There's a million things. I didn't even say, I didn't even maybe say that as well as I should have, but that, um, I'll give an, an anecdote with that, but I'm not going to name the person, but one of the world's leading hedge fund managers whose son happens to be interested in organic agriculture. Um, I've had some, some fleeting you know, interactions with them over the last 10 years, and they're a little bit intrigued. And I, um, I just noticed that the son opened up this, you know, I, I'm tracking who's reading this call to farms piece that we just put out, and the son has, has been reading it, <laughs> which is really cool. But what are they doing as a family? They're, they're focusing on like 5,000 acre corn and soybean farms in the Midwest and that, uh, aiming to prove that following regenerative farming practices can be just as profitable or more profitable for those farms Great. in industrial. And, they're at that, and they believe that what slow money is doing is too small. Mm-hmm. And this is never gonna add up, you know, that we can't get enough change fast enough because everything is so small. And I, you know, they could be right 
In other words, it could be that we can't get enough change fast enough. That could be true. But it also is, is at least as plausible that you'll never get the change you want from the big stuff down because you can't reverse engineer things at that scale and really do what is needed, which is preserving life in the soil, sequestering carbon, um, getting toxics out of the food chain, all the things we need to do. You can make incremental change when you're reverse engineering a 5,000 or 10,000 acre farm, but you can't get all the way there. So I want to I want to share uh, a little quiz with you and the listeners now that might bring this home. So here's the quiz. How much time every year does, does an industrial farmer spend on each acre of his land? You can just assume it's a five or 10,000 acre farm. How much, how much time does that farmer spend on each acre of land? Um, probably, a probably a year. Yeah, every year. Maybe a few hours, I would guess. Because so you, so... you, you know you're, you're a fairly astute <laughs> yes, player. So 45 I'm minutes. A, it's a loaded question for me. 45 minutes. 45 minutes. 45 minutes. And then, and then you think, well, in what form is this person on the land? And probably most of that is in the, in the cab of a $500,000 machine. Right, which the okay. bank owns. <laughs> All right, yeah. So as opposed to my, my dear friend, Elliot Coleman up in Maine, who farms you know, a handful of acres extremely intensively and has inspired generations of organic. Awesome man. Awesome guy. Um, Get me I'm, an interview. <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't know how often he does podcasts. I'm going to. No, he does, but he does it with his people, like real, the real organic people. Well, that's because he's very involved with the real organic. Yes, exactly. He makes a lot of time for them. But I can ask him. I might <laughs> oh, uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll call it in. <laughs> but meanwhile, well, so, go ahead. So, so when I I, I I relayed that fact to him one day when we were bantering, and he said, "Woodman, um, how many hours are there in a year?" I said, I, I don't know. He said, well, that's how many hours I spend on each acre. Because he's only farming two acres and he's doing it all, you know, in, in greenhouses super intensively, you know. So it's like a whole different paradigm. And if you, if you put that in money, which is good, just to, again, come back to the practical side of things, I guess. The paradigms, the industrial, how do you say this? The practical paradigms we're talking about, about how to farm. If you take an extensive, you know, um, monoculture, of five to 10,000 acres, that farmer is probably getting, is grossing maybe $1,000 an acre, just take a stab at the number, you know, for a commodity crop, right? Mm -hmm. But they have 5,000 acres times 1,000, that's $5 million a year gross from the farm. The, the Elliot Coleman's of the world, and by the way, Elliot is iconically exemplar, so there aren't too many functioning at his level, but there are Sorry, some. one of a kind. Well, but there are, you know, there are, there are, there are a few others, yeah. Um, you know, they can be grossing, they can be getting $50,000 an acre, sometimes even a little more. So because they're intensively cultivating multiple crops on each piece of land and it takes a lot more labor, that's the catch. It's a whole different way of thinking about the, re but the reason that those numbers are important is from a pro productivity standpoint, is how much food can you produce from a piece of land and do it in a way that's preserving and enhancing life in the soil and sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And the quality of the food. And the quality of the food, the nutrient density too. It's, it's amazing that you can, translate that into $50,000 of revenue, meaning money from that piece of land while doing all those other amazing things. So we have to make it happen more. <laughs> That's yes, the bottom line. I, now, that... now here, but here's the, here's the catch. The other catch is you don't make that much money doing it. Even if you do everything right, <laughs> you do everything fantastically well. It's a hard you're life. Still, you'll, you'll make a living for a family. You can't really make much of a return for people providing capital. And in my view, we shouldn't even be trying. We should, as a society, be wealthy enough, in quotes, meaning as a, as a whole, all the inequality notwithstanding, 
given what we spend on the military, given what we spend all kinds of things on, we should be wealthy enough to be able to provide capital for this activity without thinking about how much we get back out of it other than the, all these other benefits. So, and so that's where this idea of 0% loans you know, comes. We're talking to Woody Tash. He's the founder of Bitcoin and Slow Money. And as you can hear, doing some amazing things. And really great to talk to you about all this stuff because this is the area where I'm the most chagrined sometimes. I feel like you, like you said, scale and speed. I'm really worried about the speed. Um, the yeah. scale too, I always worry, is there going to be some corporation comes along and finally tries to do it this may be a dozen smaller sections, but is doing it right, you know, and brings the capital to, to the table for it. And then, you know, we have all this other stuff that's coming, which can get you despondent, but I try to key in on trying to do positive things with my local community, which is Connecticut and Long Island, and bring the news like the, that you bring to the table. I like it a lot. Well, I'll have to come down and do something in Connecticut at some point. I don't know if I told you when we said hello the other day, but you know, I lived, I grew up in Stanford. I lived in Westport and Southport when I was older. So, so, you know, I know your neighborhood. Yeah. Awesome. Well, now, back, now that I'm back on the East coast, maybe I come down to a, do a book tour talk or something, but yeah, it's, I think now we're the problem we're facing now is more just a problem of noise. You know, there's so much noise out there. We're so bombarded with information and, and, you know, there are a lot of different ways to say that you can talk about the speed of money, the speed of information, there, there are a lot of different things. But if we just kind of translate into every day, it's noise. It's like a constant cacophony of crap. Right. Um, I'm not saying it's all crap, but when it becomes that constant, it, in a way, it all does become crap because it all just becomes noise, including news about the war. You hear about it every single day, multiple times every day, the same story over and over again about which thing happened. And that you do become numb. It's It's just a it's a thing. I'm sure there's right. some name for psychology. So we're all, so we all are numb. We're bombarded. We're overwhelmed. And so it's hard to stay focused on things that matter. It's hard right. to just pull back a little. So the, in the, in the slow movement, you know, in slow food, slow money, we talk about slowing down enough, but it's not just, you know, what's yoga that's slowing down. So you can get back in touch with this, that, and the other thing. You know? So there's something we've, we definitely, we're definitely losing our way. I don't think there are too many people who who aren't willing to acknowledge that we're kind of going <laughs> what's on. going on so, yeah, yeah. You're on your site you say to go local more collectively to be patient more urgently to go slow more quickly to go small in much bigger ways you got to expand on that for me oh i'm so glad you found that <laughs> i mean you have a good way with words for sure well yeah i mean that phrase sums it up to me um, in fact, in again, because uh, I've been doing a bunch of this lately, you know, a bunch of rabble rousing, and I was talking to a retired investment banker of some repute who in his own life has gone, is going totally local now. You know, he owns a farm. It's all about the local food system. And, everything, and I haven't been able to get him to engage with slow money or Bitcoin. It kind of, it, it kind of bugs me a little because we agree on everything. And then his answer is, I'm just going local. You know, I'm just doing my own local. <laughs> he doesn't want the big picture anymore. But we need to help each other go local. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And he can do it. We need to create some structures and some thought patterns and some shared vision and whatever so that we see that we're all, we are all in it together. We don't all have to reinvent the wheel. And we should be sharing. This is why Slow Money is a little, it's a movement. You know, we're just all talking to each other about this and kind of um, encouraging one another down the same path. But we definitely shouldn't all be reinventing the wheel. And that's that's where I hope this idea of 0% community loan groups 
you know, will catch in a more meaningful way because it's a gentle structure. It's just a way of getting people together to do something that we all want to do. It's sort of like uh, Amish barn raising in financial circle. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to show a video in the early slow money meetings of um, that had a clip of a, of a barn raising um, in it. Um, it. It was put together. It was, uh, I forget which food documentary is in actually, I should be able to remember that, but I don't, but it has, it, it kind of has, has um, some barn raising scenes and then it flashes back to the documentarian's uh, upbringing when his, parents were building a barn on their farm and they're putting a new roof on it and everything. And that, that's a beautiful, that's nothing to be embarrassed about to say that that's beautiful and we want to try to emulate some of that spirit. That doesn't make us Luddites or weirdos or anything. I think it's a really a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's community, building community. I mean, I there's, I try to do that in my own little suburban neighborhoods. I just get to know my neighbors. I know some of them are Trumpers. I see the flag, but I go out and talk gardening or, you know, whatever issue is in the neighborhood with them. You know, it's I think it's important. To well, so since you said that, the, the word that I shall not repeat. Um, so it's, it's uh, you have to figure out which word that was. <laughs> <laughs> it begins with a T and ends with P. <laughs> yeah, it's one of, something like that, yeah. So... So I've said noise before, but it's worse than noise. That's what that that's what makes me realize because when, if we can be alive at a time when someone who's dying of COVID doesn't believe in COVID, right? That's one way of highlighting it. Wild. Or, 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 or let's take the Russians. I don't know how much of this stuff you've been watching, but I watch mm -hmm. I watch BBC a lot. And they and last week they had a story of a woman whose sister she's in Ukraine and her sister is lives in Russia, and they're they. They basically disowned each other over this because the sister in Russia is saying that she doesn't believe what the sister in Ukraine is telling her is happening. Yep. Like sisters. Yep, that and happens a lot. And the one in Russia is just saying, no, it's all made up. It's fake news. The Ukrainians are doing it. It's not as bad as they're saying. And the sister's going, I'm living here. It's happening. You know, you got so it's more, it's worse than just noise. You know, it, it's also this ideological. Um, What's the word? I don't know. It's kind of like we're backing ourselves in a corner ideologically out of fear and, you know, all the other things that are going on. It's, it's like a last ditch response, right? And you can't, you can't cope any other way. You just back yourself into this ideological corner and then you just stop thinking, basically. You just right. check out. It's very Orwellian in a lot of ways. Oh, I mean, my God. God, was he prescient. Right. And all right, so, where, where's uh, you have some vodka on this podcast? <laughs> I hear you. So you know, one more thing from the from the aha you wrote that we yeah. find ourselves in the uncomfortable position of going faster and faster, bigger and bigger, more and more cyber in response to the problems that were caused by faster and faster, bigger and bigger, and more and more cyber. And we we're sort of touching on that. Yeah. Give me a little more about that thing you wrote well you know that's just a riff on the einstein thing of you know doing the same thing over and over again hoping for a different result is the definition of insanity right so mm -hmm. so, so and, th and that kind of comes back to what i was trying to say about my investment banker friend who's who's you know it, it's it's uh or 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 the hedge fund manager more and his son who are doing the five thousand acre thing we can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and just tweaking it a little bit hoping something different is going to happen you know it's it's so the idea of just doubling down on technological innovation or doubling down, getting money to go even faster, you know, going from hyper fast trading to hyper hyper fast trading, or, you know, it's, it's kind of a never ending self-defeating thing. So we need to imagine the alternative, 
or not the alternative, that, that alternatives are possible, that other ways of being in the world actually are still possible. Everything doesn't have to, you don't have to chase the technological rabbit down the rabbit hole completely. So there, that's it. That's my, yeah. that's my story and I'm sticking with it. So tell me about Call to Farms. What's that all about? Well, I don't, I think anybody will empathize with laying awake at night, being freaked out about the whole Ukraine thing. And um, I, I just started going a little deeper over a couple of nights ago. I kind of went back to my early days. I'm 70. So I was of age when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And, and it just kind of brought back just a lot of things in kind of the arc of a person's life um, as relating to violence, military violence, the threat of war, nuclear proliferation, all these things. And, and um, so I know it kind of, it could seem a little far-fetched to try to connect that to kind of working with small farmers, but I really don't think it is far-fetched. You know, one of my favorite pithiest one-liners um, is from the poet Gary Snyder, um, you know, an old, old friend of Wendell Berry's and an important, you know, cultural figure. Uh, and he, he wrote that food is the field in which we daily explore our harming of the world. Hmm. And uh, it's a very deep thing, really makes you think about a lot of things. And um, so the whole interrelationship between, let's say, what we call organic or regenerative farming, you go from there to no-till farming, and then you kind of go, you think through what we're trying to do. It's really about trying to grow food, causing as little harm as possible, killing as few things as possible in order to grow our food. That may sound a little, a little squishy, but but it really isn't because when you talk about fertility in the soil where there are trillions of microorganisms in every small bit of soil, it's like uncountable amounts of life in the soil. And we are basically destroying it over time in order to produce food in an industrial fashion. And it's just, there's so much life in the soil that we haven't killed it all yet, but we are fairly far along the way <laughs> towards creating irreparable damage. Um, so, so the connections between violence and doing no harm and how we grow our food and how we care for one another, you know, it's not, it's not that far-fetched, especially when you realize that it was farming that kind of set us on the path towards geopolitics and the nation state 10,000 years ago. So, um, so if that all sounds like a thing, <laughs> I turned it into one, a little 12 page document called A Call to Farms and I circulated it a week ago uh, to a few thousand of my closest friends. <laughs> That's how I found you. <laughs> and, and, and right, and it connected us. And I've been, I have been very heartened by the response. It's been really, it's meant a lot. And I'm trying to kind of figure out like what it really might mean, um, you know, up to and including possibly convening people under the banner of a call to farms, meaning a kind of a new way for a bunch of us to get together that isn't about promoting any one nonprofit or any one certification or any one thing, but is kind of a, a higher frame for us to kind of look through the the question of how do we engage one another? How do we mobilize many more people and dollars to preserve and restore small organic farms and local food systems? Hmm. And so, call the farms. Where'd you where'd you get that from? I mean, well, uh, I, actually, that's a great question. So, I actually, um, well, I did come up with it, but then I checked. You know how we are in today's world. You can check see if anybody else came up with it. <laughs> sure. And someone else, someone else had used it earlier. Um, I, I think the only use of it that I Anyway, so that's kind of a footnote to history about a group in the Midwest had used it on and off for maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But but it's a catchy, it's catchy, kind of catches your attention a little bit, I think. And I mean, here's, here's just a couple of sentences from the piece just to give you a flavor. So it says, the question before us then is not only how we will mobilize to redress the immediate harm done by militarism, 
The question is also how we will plant the seeds of a peaceable economy. There is no better place to start than with how we grow our food, how we feed ourselves and one another, how we relate to and care for the land. And if you'll indulge me, I'll just read a couple more little things here just to give Go for it. flavor. As awe-inspiring as globalization is, and as terrifying as the shadows of ancient tribal antipathies and geopolitical ambitions are, they must not absorb the whole of our attention. While we deal with them, we must also prepare the ground for what comes next. Let us nurture a great awakening of local conscientiousness, a great coming together in communities and watersheds and food sheds around the world, so that what Slow Foods Carlo Petrini calls virtuous globalization can sink deep perennial roots into a complementary process of virtuous localization. Let us imagine and then march forthrightly in the direction of, with a kind of affection and gumption for the ages, the vision of millions of individuals and thousands of communities around the world bringing money back down to earth in the name of health and peace. So that's the end of it. It's um, a little bit grand there at the end. But, awesome. uh, but the, the, so to me, there's a, a very fundamental element of do, doing no harm, if you want to call it that. You can say pacifism, but that turns it into an ism. So just say, just doing no harm, that, that we're trying to imagine an economy that can create jobs, wealth, health without harm. And, and unfortunately, when you're, you know, you, you're confronted with an irrational, something as irrationally violent and as the, as, as the invasion of Ukraine, and then you, and you think about things like every Tomahawk missile that is fired is a million dollars, a million dollars, meaning a million tax dollars were spent manufacturing each one of those missiles. So that's the economy. That's, that's our economy. Um, that's one kind of violence, that's overt military violence. But, you know, using cheap petrochemicals to grow extensive monocultures of commodity crops is, a, is actually doing violence to the earth. Now, I know it's, that sounds extremely effete to put it that way, it does. It sounds like, oh, my, this guy's been eating at too many farm to table restaurants. But, but if you really think deeply about what is happening, it is what we're doing. We are killing the soil, we are killing microorganisms in the soil in order to grow more food quickly. And we can get away with it for a few hundred years, maybe not even a few hundred years. I mean, there, there are plenty of things that are saying we only have another 50 years to do it, but we don't need to debate how bad it is or how quickly we're gonna fall off the cliff. We just need to know we're heading towards the cliff in order to wanna to kind of change our behavior. So I wrote this piece called Farm Circulated to some friends and it, it kind of sparked with a bunch of people. And so I'm wondering whether we might want to try to pull some of us together for, for what? For a kind of a broader conversation about how do we get more of us doing this? And this in the broadest sense, you know, um, working at the community level to pr promote healthy food and reduce, let's say the violence and unhealthy consequences of the food system, but, but doing it with a little more intention on the question of, of nonviolence than we usually do. Usually the food movement doesn't talk directly about nonviolence and the production of food. And I think the situation in Ukraine is kind of compelling us to maybe do that. 
Well, I think we're both doing what we're doing because we're a bit worried about, on a personal level, what's in this for our grandchildren's world that's coming. I mean, it it does look really kind of negative. And so I always am trying to teach them, you know, about the worm farm in the basement, you know, and how to plant something and just try to appreciate that community and that stuff. And I think that's what you're doing with some of this stuff, with building this community with capital. Yeah, the tricky thing, of course, is the money is as soon as you get, you know, organized things with money, (laughs) all kinds of things kick in. For everything from perverse incentives to greed to securities laws, which have a whole history, culture, and momentum of their own, you know, all kinds of things. But, you know, simple way of thinking about it is, you know, we send our money to Wall Street. It's very hard to ever really take it back and do something totally different with it because we just get sucked into that mentality. And it comes all the way down to, if you just think about like what, you know, where's all the money in Wall Street invested? You know, people don't even so fundamental it's invested in public corporations and you have to say well what's a public corporation well let's not even go down there because in the interest of time and all, all things we don't have to go there we'll just say just think about a big you know a public corporation and think about a small farm as two ends of a pole of, of some kind of a pole of economic activity you know a small farm is place-based it's never going to grow it's never going to be owned by a hundred thousand anonymous people it's never going to have committees of financiers manipulating its numbers. <laughs> I'm not even going to all of the ecological and health benefits. And I'm just talking about on the money side, right? So it's like if you want a world that is just run by big corporations and committees of fiduciaries and lawyers, then go ahead and send all your money to Wall Street, you know, because that's the world you're going to get. And some corporations will be better than others. And, and, but they're all going to be hard to manage because they speed up and they get more complicated and they get bigger and it's in- increasingly difficult to really control them. And I, I, I would, somebody's gonna listen to this and say, I don't believe that, but, but that's what I believe. And I think there's tons of evidence to suggest that. And so, so yes, we have to try to manage them better. We have to try to make them as green as possible. I'm not saying, I'm, you know, we have to recognize the benefits that they do bring And, but we also have to recognize with the same kind of candor, all the costs that they, that come with them, including wealth inequality and fear and distrust and, and complexity and speed, all those different things. So doing what we want to do for our grandchildren, you know, to, to come back to the way you framed it, some of it has to be not just like growing the food in our backyard. That is great. That is really great. I mean, everybody should do that. We'd all be better off but it's actually addressing the structural economic problem that we face, which is how, how do we get control of the economy? How do, we, how do we have some meaningful control out of our community economic fortunes? Because the problem has to be solved at multiple levels. And, you know, if it, if it comes back to all of us growing our own food because it was total collapse, you know, there's no reason for us to have this conversation today. If that happens, we will all cope and, and the best we can. But in the meantime, we're trying to soften the landing. We're trying to create pathways for all different energy to flow and we have to do that at the at the local level at the community level you you talked about knowing some of your neighbors you know we have to get to know the places where we live and collaborate with some of the people who live in those places to make the places better starting with the food system and and unfortunately in today's world that seems like a really complicated thing to do when it is actually one of the simplest things we could do and one way to do it is bitcoin right so tell us where Somebody out there is now going to want to 
join up with Bitcoin. So tell us where we can do this and what, what you think you sh they should do. Well, so, so, so in terms of what can we all do? So, so we have a few months ago, we went live with a site called bitcoin.org. So beat like the vegetable coin.org. If you go there, you will see what we just talked about in, in a lot of depth. You'll see the kinds of farms that are getting funded, who's doing what, where, all the rationale, et cetera. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are five groups currently making 0% loans at the local level. And we want to use Bitcoin capital to, to grow those groups and start new ones in as many places as possible. So you can um, donate to Bitcoin any amount. It could be a dollar, five dollars, fifty dollars, or or much more if you're so inclined. And you get the vote if it's two fifty. Now, now I, I'm just, I was just going there. So the people who are making the zero percent loans are the local people who live in the places. So all Bitcoin is is a way for us all to chip in somewhere. You know, if, you, if you're never going to go to a local meeting, you don't live in a place where there's a local group and or you just want to chip in a few bucks, you do it through Bitcoin. But the action takes place at the local level where we are deeply committed to building local capacity to put capital to work locally. So there's, there's a bit of, there's, and by the way, OK, there's a bit of a conundrum in there. Someone's listening, going, wait, a minute, what the hell is he talking about? How can you use the Internet to do that? We don't know. We're trying. We're, we're exploring. Can the Internet be used to enhance this local activity or not? But all the funding decisions are made by local groups, by majority vote, one person, one vote, no matter how much money you put in at the local level. So right now there are only five groups. There's a new one starting in Tel Aviv as we speak. There's probably one starting in China. But at this moment, there are five groups in the US making 0% loans. And so we, would, we will start allocating Bitcoin capital as we get it in. We've, we've only done two $10,000 allocations of Bitcoin capital. We're still very small. I'm not embarrassed to say that. We're just getting going. We've done no broad-based marketing of any kind, but we will soon. We're, we're kind of gearing up to try to get the word out. That's why I'm so glad. Wow, awesome. I love it. That's great. Well, Woody yeah. Tash, you're the founder of Slow Money and now Bitcoin. It sounds all really great. I really appreciate you coming here to, to speak with me today. Well, I'm glad we found each other and uh, glad you're, you're interested enough to give me some airtime. So thank you. My pleasure. I'm going to have you back for sure. We'll, we'll follow the developments of uh, Bitcoin and what's going on. It's important stuff. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. And thanks for uh, finding a few of the passages and reading them. It means a lot. So thanks. thanks. No problem at all. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindthedirtradio.com.